Hello everyone, welcome to The Layman's Historian, Episode 4. Last time, we left off with the explosive growth of Carthage as a commercial, political, and technological power. We discussed how within the city of Carthage, huge industrial workshops churned out fine pottery, carved ivory, engraved bronze, and a host of other goods which filled the Carthaginian ships to the brim. These ships would transport Carthaginian wares to the clamoring markets overseas, while the bazaars and squares of Carthage exhibited every luxury and commodity the Mediterranean world could offer. Outside the high, thick walls of the city, spacious gardens, lavish villas, and acre upon acre of irrigated, fertile farmland not only fed Carthage, but propelled it forward as an agricultural expert without equal, a true breadbasket of the Mediterranean. Yet, as we saw last time, not all was well with Carthage even in its beginning, for though it prospered mightily on the outside, the inside of the temples of Baal Haman, the same Baal or Baal from the Bible, reeked with the blood of infants burned in the Tophets. However, today our focus is not on the city of Carthage itself, but on its expansion along the North African coast into the Mediterranean Sea and beyond. Beginning with North Africa, by the early 500s BC, Carthage had begun to expand rapidly into land neighboring the capital. Although the ancient historian Justin claims that the Carthaginians had previously paid tribute to the local Libyans, the ancient name for the Berbers, in order to use the surrounding North African land for farming, Carthage soon acquired the sole ownership of the region for itself, either by alliance with the Libyans or possibly by aggressive military conquests. If you have a chance, before I start describing the extent of Carthage's territories, it would probably be helpful if you could look up a map of North Africa so you can follow along. The Carthaginians established numerous forts, estates, and settlements along the coast and interior of what is now modern-day Tunisia, including extending their authority over the fertile Capbon Peninsula, the peninsula directly to the east of Carthage across what is now the Gulf of Tunis. Cap Bon was a particularly valuable acquisition to Carthage's territory since it was a luscious and bountiful area in ancient times. The Greek historian Diodorus Siculus has left us the following glowing description of the region. All the lands were set with gardens and orchards watered by numerous springs and canals. There were well-constructed country houses built with lime along the route, announcing widespread wealth. The houses were filled with things that contribute to the enjoyment of life and have been stored up by the inhabitants thanks to a long peace. The land was cultivated with vines, olive trees, and a host of fruit trees. On both sides there were herds of oxen and sheep grazing on the plain, and near the main pastures and the marshes there were studs of horses. To be brief, in these lands was the varied prosperity of the most distinguished landowners of Carthage, who enjoyed using wealth for the pleasures of life. Ruins of villas in Cap Bon show that Diodorus was not exaggerating about the luxurious surroundings the Carthaginian elites enjoyed. Most of these villas were two-story structures that had an outside terrace and numerous rooms, living quarters, and storage facilities centered around a large courtyard. Many of these rooms had cupboards and chests set within the walls, along with built-in bread ovens. Often. There were multiple bathrooms in a home, with highly sophisticated plumbing, along with stepped seats, armrests, and basins set within the walls. 
All in all, the beautiful location, coupled with Carthaginian ingenuity, made the estates at Cap Bon some of the most comfortable lodgings the ancient world could offer. Besides Cap Bon, Carthage also acquired the Medherda Valley, a vital grain-producing region just below the city, as well as the Sirtis region, a large swath of land encompassing most of what is now Tunisia and the northwest portion of modern-day Libya. Many existing Phoenician colonies in North Africa came under Carthaginian sway at this time too, including Hadrumetum, an ancient trading city along the Gulf of Hammamet, Hippodaritis, an important port city which is now modern-day Bizert, and Utica, the city which purportedly had welcomed Dido and her Tyrian followers when they landed. Besides being extremely fertile, these North African lands were also abundant with natural resources. Although farms and orchards dominated the plains surrounding Carthage, extensive forests grew in the more rural areas, especially near the foothills of the Atlas Mountains to the southwest. These forests supplied the Carthaginians with a ready supply of timber for their buildings and ships. Deposits of salt from the Tunisian salt lakes in the interior proved to be another valuable resource, since salt was highly prized for seasoning and preserving food. Meanwhile, the surrounding rich savannas were perfectly suited for raising substantial herds of horses, both the small local ponies and larger breeds imported from Europe, as well as other livestock including sheep, goats, pigs, and cattle. The forests and plains were also suited to beekeeping, as well as supporting wild animals including antelopes, gazelles, buffaloes, donkeys, oryxes, foxes, hyenas, wild rams, panthers, lions, and crocodiles. Monkeys were abundant too, and were often captured and traded as pets for amusement, especially for the children. Finally, there were herds of North African elephants, a now extinct species, which roamed through the mountain forests in the interior. See, I promised we'd get to talk about elephants, didn't I? The Carthaginians not only hunted these elephants for their ivory tusks, but they also tamed them and trained them as beasts of war. These elephant corps would famously feature in many of the battles of the Punic Wars. But that comes later. More elephants on the way. Though these lands were extremely fertile and productive, they gave Carthage access to another resource it desperately needed, manpower. Although the city of Carthage had an impressive population, the majority of its citizens were dedicated to being merchants or craftsmen within the city itself. Now that it had acquired huge tracts of land, Carthage needed laborers to cultivate the extensive farms. During the expansion into North Africa, large numbers of Libyan tribes fell under the dominion of Carthage, and these supplied the Carthaginian state with the agricultural laborers to till the vast fields and manual labor to power the industrial workshops. Later, the Libyans, Numidians, Mari, and other North African and Berber populations would supply the backbone of Carthage's soldiers, as fewer and fewer full-blooded Carthaginian citizens were willing to take the field. Although Carthage often had to put down isolated rebellions from these tribes, and at least once faced a serious threat from them in the mercenary war, on the whole, they served the Carthaginian state loyally and well. By providing Carthage with large amounts of arable land, populous cities, and raw natural resources, North African territories such as Cap Bon fueled the beginnings of the Carthaginian hegemony. 
Carthaginian power was not confined to the North African coast, however. Like its Phoenician forebear, Carthage quickly developed both a powerful navy and a vast merchant fleet. As we saw last time, this fleet allowed for Carthage to utilize and further develop trade routes that the Phoenician city-states such as Tyre had founded, and due to Carthage's demand for raw materials, as well as its large exports of finished goods, many Phoenician colonies began to feel the weight of Carthage's commercial control during this time. In the early 500s BC, Carthaginian influence in the central and western Mediterranean was further strengthened due to events that would prove catastrophic to her mother city of Tyre. In 573 BC, Tyre was captured by Nebuchadnezzar II, king of Babylon, after a 13-year siege. Incidentally, this is the same Nebuchadnezzar who had destroyed the southern Hebrew kingdom of Judah and who features prominently in the book of Daniel. As part of the peace treaty with the Babylonians, Tyre agreed to pay a humiliating tribute to Nebuchadnezzar, firmly placing it under the Babylonian thumb. This was only the beginning of Tyre's troubles, though. The city would later be conquered by the Persians and then razed by the Greeks under Alexander. Indeed, after Nebuchadnezzar's siege, Tyre ceased to have any real political significance until it regained its independence 460 years later. Tyre's demise spelled doom for numerous Phoenician colonies that depended on her trading networks. Many of these colonies existed solely for the purpose of feeding Tyre's industry by supplying it with raw materials. To make matters worse, the silver market collapsed during this period due to an oversupply of silver in the east from the mines of Spain. With their mother city in shambles and the lucrative silver trade gone, Phoenician colonies along the coast of Spain were quickly abandoned. However, what was a disaster for Tyre and its other Phoenician colonies presented a major opportunity for Carthage. Carthage seems to have been relatively unaffected by the collapse of Tyre and the silver market. Its economic resilience was likely due to the fact that Carthaginian trade did not depend solely on the east-west trade routes between Spain and the Middle East, since Carthage also kept up a thriving trade through the north-south trade routes from Gaul the ancient name for modern-day France, Italy, and Sicily. With Tyrian shipping declining in the west, Carthage increased its own shipping by picking up where the Tyrians had left off, taking over the old Phoenician trade routes and expanding its own shipping lanes, especially lanes supplying raw materials and finished goods to the eastern Mediterranean. This bonanza of trade rapidly increased Carthage's already fabulous wealth. The power vacuum left by Tyre also allowed Carthage to begin to have a more authoritative role in the western Mediterranean. Although Carthage had founded its own colonies during the mid-600s BC, most notably the island colony of Ibiza off the coast of Spain, the 6th century BC saw an upsurge of Carthaginian activity overseas. New colonies were founded in Sardinia, Spain, and Morocco while older Phoenician settlements were repopulated with Carthaginian settlers. Conquest also fueled some of Carthage's expansion during this time, though to what extent is unknown. The 3rd century AD historian Justin, drawing on accounts from earlier historians, gives several instances of Carthaginian military action in the Mediterranean. For instance, Justin states that a Carthaginian general named Malchus overran much of the island of Sicily, until he was heavily defeated in Sardinia. 
Exiled by the Carthaginian Senate due to his failure, Malchus and his troops returned and laid siege to Carthage. Malchus would even capture the city at some point, but he would later be murdered due to accusations that he was going to crown himself as king. Justin also claims that another Carthaginian general, Mago, sent a large expeditionary force to Sardinia in the late 6th century BC, under the command of his sons, Hasdrubal and Hamilcar. After fierce fighting, the indigenous Nuragic tribes of Sardinia were driven into the mountainous forests in the north of the island. Finally, Justin accuses the Carthaginians of seizing Gades, which, as we remember, was the rotting fish-gut sauce capital of the ancient world, after its citizens had begged for Carthaginian help against the warlike Iberian tribes who surrounded them. Although exact details are lacking on the process of Carthaginian expansion, we must take these Roman and Greek accusations of an imperialistic and tyrannical Carthage with a grain of salt. Remember, these writers were not terribly fond of the Carthaginians, whose power and wealth often made them a dangerous foe. Although doubtless the Carthaginians did conquer some lands, it would likely be an error to think that Carthage was a civilization solely built by conquest. Rather, the Carthaginian hegemony in the 6th century BC seems to be much more like a loose confederation of city-states, with Carthage at the head, rather than a dictatorial or imperialistic empire. Often, the Phoenician colonies had conflicts with the indigenous peoples surrounding them. Carthage herself had had numerous quarrels and skirmishes with the Libyans and Numidians neighboring her, and it stands to reason that weaker Phoenician colonies would have asked for and welcomed Carthaginian military intervention and protection to defend them against hostile tribes. It also seems that many Phoenician cities looked to Carthage for both economic support and military protection against the ever-encroaching Greek colonies in Sicily, Lower Italy, known as Magna Graecia, or Great Greece in ancient times, and along the southern coast of Gaul. Rather than being solely built on conquest, the Carthaginian hegemony was probably built via a complex combination of commercial influence, political alliances, short-term military intervention, colonial settlement, and mutual interdependence due to Carthaginian trade networks. We also have evidence that Carthage was a surprisingly cosmopolitan empire, with many Libyans, Numidians, Greeks, Iberians, Italians, and Celts serving in both the Carthaginian military as soldiers and officers, as well as in Carthaginian industry and agriculture. Intermarriages between Greeks and Phoenicians were not uncommon. While in North Africa, there are some indications that the Carthaginian population had mingled with the local peoples, giving rise to a middle group called the Libby Phoenicians by Roman and Greek authors. Though they often had substantial rights and privileges, these groups were still usually viewed as inferior to those who could prove their pure Phoenician heritage. Various temple complexes and idols also indicate that Carthaginian deities were combined with, or identified with, other prominent Mediterranean gods. This is especially true in Sicily, where Hercules Melkart was often worshipped, as well as in Sardinia, where the Punic god Sid was combined with the Nuragic god Babi. Hybridized architecture and artistic techniques combining various Libyan, Phoenician, and Greek styles also testify to a large amount of cooperation and cultural exchange. These, and other instances of combined families, deities, and culture, demonstrate that the Carthaginians assimilate with some of the local peoples, more or less, especially in the colonies.
One of the most significant examples of the extent of Carthaginian influence during this period is in the rise of Punic as the dominant language among the Phoenician colonies in the western Mediterranean. The word Punic is the Anglicization of the Latin word for all things Carthaginian, Punicus, which itself is a derivative of the Greek word Phoenicus, which, as we talked about in an earlier episode, was the Greek term for the Phoenicians. The Punic language was a variant of the Phoenician, but as time went on and Carthage lost contact with Phoenicia, it became more heavily influenced by local Libyan dialects. By the late 6th century BC onwards, Punic became the lingua franca among the central and western Phoenician colonies, indicating that Carthage maintained a definite cultural as well as military and political presence in the region. To the colonies, however, perhaps one of the most beneficial aspects of their new relationship with Carthage was the protection the Carthaginian navy afforded them. Besides tribal warlords and local city-state tyrants, these smaller Phoenician colonies often faced dire threats to their merchant shipping due to pirates. Although ancient pirates were probably not as filled with the swashbuckling bravado we are used to, they had many things in common with their 17th century brethren, specifically their love of taking other people's hard-earned stuff. Endemic and sustained piracy could bring ruin on a coastal city's prosperity, since they depended so heavily on sea trade. Several places in the ancient world, notably the island of Crete in the Mediterranean, the coast of Cilicia in modern-day Turkey, and the Illyrian coast in the Balkans were notorious for their pirates. In fact, the Romans had to fight three major wars against the Illyrian kingdoms before they were able to rid the Adriatic of piracy. As a strong commercial power, the Carthaginians were particularly concerned about pirates, and Carthage's policy towards pirates and pirate nations was famous for its uncompromising and ruthless nature. To give one example, the Greek historian Herodotus states that, in 535 BC, the Phocians, Greek refugees from Asia Minor, established a pirate base on Corsica and plundered the local shipping, including Carthaginian ships. Carthage, in conjunction with the Etruscan cities from Italy, organized a punitive expedition of 60 ships, which met the 60 ships of the Phocians in the sea off of Sardinia. Although the Phocians at first gained the upper hand, they were eventually driven off the island. Any Phocian who was unlucky enough to be captured by the Carthaginians was taken ashore and stoned to death. To the Carthaginians, the only good pirate was a dead pirate. The joint expedition with the Etruscans against the Phocians also demonstrates another factor that contributed to Carthage's early success at empire building, diplomacy. Carthage routinely entered into agreements with other power players in the Mediterranean, and these treaties would often contain very detailed and explicit terms specifying each party's territory and responsibilities. In 509 BC, Carthage signed one such agreement with the Romani, the citizens of the Latin city of Rome. The treaty, which the Greek historian Polybius recounts in detail, provided that Carthage and Rome were to be allies, an irony that surely was not lost on later generations. Additionally, the term set strict limits on where each city could operate, the Romans being forbidden to sail past Cap Bon, while the Carthaginians could not build forts in the region around Rome or attack Roman subjects or allies. Additionally, in a move that seems to me slightly paranoid, 
Roman merchants could only conduct business in Libya or Sicily in the presence of a Carthaginian state official. However, Carthage also agreed to be surety for the transactions, so I guess there is always some give and take. But before all this talk of power politics or commercial treaties begins to sound too much like the dreaded dates and dead people sort of history, I want to spice up the episode here at the end by telling about the Carthaginian exploration stories during this time, which are mixed with only a slight dash of conspiracy theories. As we remember, the Phoenicians were renowned explorers in their sturdy seagoing vessels, having possibly sailed to regions as far away as Britain. Not to be outdone, the Carthaginians continued and expanded on this seafaring tradition, and fortunately for us, records of at least two of these expeditions have come down to us. The first was by Himilco, a Carthaginian navigator who sailed through the Pillars of Hercules, now known as the Straits of Gibraltar, around Spain, through the Bay of Biscay, along the coast of Gaul, all the way to the British Isles. This feat makes Himilco the first named sailor to ever reach northwestern Europe from the Mediterranean, although Roman authors, probably trying to steal some of his thunder, state that Himilco followed trade routes that had been established by the Iberians. Even so, Himilco's voyage took four months to complete, as he was harassed continuously by becalmed seas, great masses of seaweed, and sea monsters. If you thought Himilco's work was impressive, the next recorded expedition was even more famous, so much so that it was inscribed on a tablet that was hung on the wall in the temple of Baal Hamon in the capital. Although this tablet has not survived, the Greek poem Periplus, meaning voyage, claims to be a faithful copy that recounts the events. This expedition was led by Hanno, aptly called the Navigator, who was a contemporary of Himilco, and commanded a force of 60 ships filled with 30,000 people. Hanno first established numerous colonies along the coast of what is now Morocco, after which he sailed through the Pillars of Hercules down the coast of Africa. Interestingly enough, the detailed descriptions from the Periplus account allow us to identify some of the places along Hanno's route down the African coast. So, for instance, Hanno sailed by the river Senegal before arriving at a land filled with colorful and aromatic forests, likely the forests of Guinea-Bissau in West Africa. Moving from there, Hanno and his men ran into a large mountain spewing molten lava into the sea, probably the active volcano of Mount Cameroon in the Gulf of Guinea. As he went down the coast, Hanno founded several colonies in areas where to this day some of the peoples claim descent from the Carthaginian explorers. Hanno and his men also interacted with the local African tribes, with mixed success. Sometimes he was able to become friends with the natives. At other times, they prevented his men from landing by throwing rocks at his boats. Perhaps the most curious portion of the account is when the Carthaginians reached a forested land, which is thought by some to be Gabon in Central Africa. Here, the Carthaginians came upon what Hanno described as hair-covered savages, which their interpreters called gorillae. Although the Carthaginians were unable to catch any of the males, who quickly climbed hills and threw rocks down at them, they were able to briefly catch three females. These bit and clawed the Carthaginians so fiercely that in the end the captors were forced to kill them. Hanno turned back at Gabon 
and the three skins of the gorilli were displayed in the temple of Tanit in Carthage until the destruction of the city, 350 years after Hanno's voyage. Although we have no way of knowing how much of Himilco's or Hanno's voyages are based in fact, it is not improbable that the Carthaginians did make such trips. According to Herodotus, Africa had already been circumnavigated by Phoenician sailors in the service of Nico II, pharaoh of Egypt, in the 6th century BC. Modern reconstructions have shown that ancient Phoenician ships could actually make it to the Horn of Africa and back. Herodotus also mentions that the Carthaginians often traded with the tribes along the Atlantic coast and includes a famous description regarding their curious method of trade. The Carthaginians also say that there is a place in Libya, used as the ancient term for all West Africa, and a nation beyond the pillars of Hercules, which they are wont to visit, where they no sooner arrive, but forthwith they unlaid their wares, and having disposed them in an orderly fashion along the beach, leave them, and returning aboard their ships, raise a great smoke. The natives, when they see the smoke, come down to the shore, and lay out to view so much gold as they think the worth of the wares, and withdraw to a distance. The Carthaginians, upon this, come ashore and look. If they think the gold enough, they take it and go their way. But if it does not seem to them sufficient, they go aboard the ship once more and wait patiently. Then the others approach and add to their gold, till the Carthaginians are content. Neither party deals unfairly by the other, for the Carthaginians themselves never touch the gold till it comes up to the worth of the goods, nor do the natives ever carry off the goods till the gold is taken away. Perhaps the most tantalizing records of Carthage's seafaring is not their trips along North Africa, but the evidence of their possible discovery of the Americas. In case you were wondering, this is the conspiracy theory part. Certain coins found in Carthaginian colonies have an engraving of a horse over what scholars used to believe was a Punic inscription. However, they discovered that the inscription beneath was not words, but a drawing. Using computer imaging software, scholars discovered what appeared to be a rudimentary map of Europe, Africa, and Asia, while across a large space of ocean was a blob that could possibly be the Americas. If this is truly a map of the world on a Carthaginian coin, then it could show that the Carthaginians had a rough idea that there was a new world across the Atlantic 1,500 years before the Vikings colonized Newfoundland and 2,600 years before Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Convinced yet? Okay, well what about the fact that there is apparently a rather obscure line in our old friend Diodorus Siculus's writings which states that the Phoenicians had discovered a continent across the sea from Africa that had many large rivers. No dice? All right. What do you think of the markings on Pedro de Gavia Mountain in Brazil, which resemble Punic inscriptions? Man, tough crowd. Okay. How about the fact that Ptolemy, a Greek astronomer and geographer, gives the coordinates to the Fortunate Isles, an island paradise in Greek mythology, which matched the coordinates to the Antilles Islands of the Caribbean, information he could possibly have gathered from the Phoenicians. Spooky, right? Speaking of New World Islands, another Carthaginian New World theory is based on a hoard of coins allegedly found in the city of Corvo in the Azores, a group of islands in the Mid-Atlantic. 
1778, a Portuguese-born Swede named Johann Franz Podelin published a report in a Royal Science Society. In the report, Podelin claims that the coin expert and historian Enrique Flores had shown him a set of Carthaginian coins, which Flores claimed came from a stash found in the Azores in 1749. According to Podelin, the coins appeared to be genuine when compared to other authentic Carthaginian coins, and many historians fully embraced the idea that the Carthaginians had sailed to the Azores. This theory has and still is fiercely contested, since the coins have apparently been lost, making Podolin's report the only evidence we have. These arguments regarding Carthage's discovery of the New World are not the only ones. Over the years, people have purportedly found tablets containing Punic inscriptions in North and South America, as well as Phoenician coins, although most of the tablets and all the coins have been shown to be clever forgeries. True to form, whenever the fun begins, the historical naysayers swoop in to quash all this crazy talk. Scholars cite the complete lack of evidence of Carthaginian or Phoenician settlements in the Americas and the difficulties of an Atlantic crossing in an ancient ship as evidences that all these theories are bogus. We'll probably never know for sure the extent of Carthaginian exploration, but it's fun to think that they could have been roaming around in my home state of South Carolina long before the Vikings or Columbus got their act together. Though we don't know about Carthage in the Americas, we do know that by the beginning of the 5th century, Carthage was a power to be reckoned with. The western Mediterranean could accurately be described as the Punic Sea, as the Carthaginian ships dominated the horizon. With that, we'll conclude the episode. I know this episode was longer than usual, but there was a lot of ground to cover to set up the stage for what comes next. Next time, we will see how Carthaginian intervention overseas led it into conflict with one of the most famous Greek cities of the ancient world. Until then, take luck and read more history. History.